Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mike Up Podcast Productions. We do two things. Number one is we launch amazing podcasts that'll change the world. Number two, we take over podcasts that have fallen under the wayside and we revamp them, relaunch them, and take care of all of the unnecessary work that you or your team don't want to do. So have you wanted to grow your personal brand, your influence, your authority? Have you wanted to create endless content for social media so that you can be seen as the go-to in your space? Have you wanted to build your confidence, become a better communicator, create more amazing relationships, cultivate really meaningful relationships? If so, then you need a podcast and I'd love to help you out. And if you have a podcast and you realize that, man, I underestimated the amount of work. I'm busy. My team's busy. I, I just don't have the resources to do it, but I don't want to sacrifice because I know the long-term gain of this is going to really help my business at building trust in my audience, it's going to put me at a level of authority. Well, then I need to keep this going, but I need somebody that knows what they're doing. I need an expert. This is where we can help. So whether you're brand new, you want to launch a show or you have a show and you just don't have time and it becomes stagnant or it's not even active, we'll help you out. What we can do is you guys can send us a DM, send me a DM on Instagram. What I'll do is I'll send you a survey, throw, answer the questions and we'll see if we're a good fit. We're looking at a, for about five entrepreneurs or business owners that we can take on, and we want to help you do that. We're only going to work with people that we feel qualify and align with our values of our team and our vision. I'm not working with just anybody. I've made the mistake in the past of taking on people that don't align with our values, and I won't do it. So I want to be super, super clear. If you are interested, you want to know more, hit me up in the DMs on Instagram. Lance.Esios and message me, ask me about the podcasting, and I'll send you the survey. All right. Enjoy the episode. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to University of Adversity. We have a very special guest for you today. If you've seen the Netflix docu-series, Cocaine Cowboys, you're in for a treat. And if not, this is a great conversation regardless, and there's so much value that we get from this. So the interesting story around this is Dr. George Valdez is joining us today. He was one of the original cocaine cowboys. And what I love about him is his message. It's not about glamorizing the gangster lifestyle. It's about talking about, you know, the consequences that lifestyle can bring and talking about the narco mindset, about what it means to change your life with your mindset. We get into all of that. And what's even cooler about this is that we have a mutual friend, his name's Roman, and he's got a podcast called Digital Savage Podcast. And he was telling me about this guy a year before Cocaine Cowboys came out. He says, he's telling me his stories, like you got to reach out to him. And I said, yeah, great. But as things happen, I kind of forgot about it. You know, I get sent a lot of awesome people and, you know, the follow-up sometimes is challenging. So he fell between the cracks. But then later I see that once Cocaine Cowboys came out, that this is the same guy that Roman was telling me about. So we're mutual friends. And I said, I got to get him on. So as soon as I saw the show, I was like, hey, we got to we gotta get you booked. And he said, sure. He loved the idea of University of Adversity and talking about it. So here we go. And what I 
what I really admire about him is that he really wants to stay true to himself and really make sure that the message is around something positive, your mindset. He doesn't want to glamorize all that, the craziness, right? And I love that because somebody like that could just talk about it and, and, and get clicks and get followers just from glamorizing that lifestyle. But he stays, stays in true to what means what's right to him and the value that his story can bring. So it's a fantastic conversation. A little bit about him. He was told he would never amount to any. And after that, he went on to get a master's degree from Wheaton College in Illinois and a PhD in the New Testament studies and ethics from the University of Loyola in Chicago, and is also now a renowned speaker who brings a message of hope, forgiveness, and the power to change. He spends his time today reflecting, writing, and mentoring his podcast and his YouTube channel, challenge everyone to delve deeper into learning from life lessons of his journey and the people around him. So great conversation. If you guys aren't subscribed to this podcast yet, please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. If you're watching this on YouTube, Please hit the subscribe button and the bell to stay notified when the episode comes out. We've got lots of amazing stuff ahead, and I don't want you to miss out on any of that. Also, if you guys get value from this, please, to give back, if you want to help support the show, we just ask that you share it with somebody that you feel needs it. Or if you want to help, leave us a review on Apple, leave us a comment on YouTube, something to show that you got value from this so that we know. Because sometimes as podcasters, we don't know if we're impacting you unless we hear. So it's really important. Send us a message. Do whatever you can just to show that the show impacted you and we greatly appreciate it. All right. Enjoy this episode. Dr. George Valdez coming right up. And here we go. Dr. George Valdez, welcome to the show, my man. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thanks for being here. Hey, Lance. I appreciate being here with you. Yeah. You know, this, this is a crazy world. And this watching this docuseries was really something else because I don't, I don't watch a lot of Netflix these days, but that story and that show was something that was really just really like sucked me in. And I was just so fascinated on the story and just everything that unfolded. And I really loved how you were in there talking about it. And, you know, also around, the challenges that you had to face throughout all of that. And even later on, it's, it's hard to imagine like what you would have to face from people, you know, maybe coming after you with like their opinions or whatever, but you know, you've come a long way and you've changed and you've done such a great job in, you know, giving back to the community and everything. So what I, what I would love to start with is really digging into your philosophy around narco mindset and how important it is and how you can really change your life with the right mindset. Walk us through what that actually means. You know, when I tell this to my children, I have six children. By God's grace, they're all super successful. And when people ask me, really, like, what is, like, one, one really principle, and, I, and I'll get into the mindset that I tell my kids, is that something that my dad used to tell my brother and I when we came from Cuba, and we're, we're very, you know, literally two raw eggs with a little powder milk in the morning and rice and beans at night, no lunch, right? We didn't have enough money to uh, eat. And my dad used to say to me and my brother all the time, I was 10, my brother was nine. Son, in life, you have no say-so whether you are sick or healthy. 
You don't have absolute control whether you're rich or poor. And I was like, yeah, I can figure that one out. <laughs> you have no control whether you're dead or alive. There's only one thing in life that you have absolute control and you cannot sacrifice by no means. And that is your word and truth. Yes. So I built my whole life around that principle that when we were little, my brother and I were like, oh my God, here comes the broken, broken record, broken record. But I look back now and it was that principle that allowed me to lay in the floor of a Panamanian prison. I had just turned 23, tortured day and night for 20 some odd days, no food to the point where I bled for five years every time I took a piss. So when people ask me, what is it about you that you have no fear? What is it about you that you were able to overcome that? How was it that you were able to overcome 10 years in prison? How was it that you were able to forfeit $60 million to the government, go back to prison, come out, earn a PhD, and then build a multi-million dollar business? And I said, that is all about mindset. So when people say, what, what is mindset? I say, you know, in life, it's absolutely insignificant what you're looking at unless you're able to identify through what lenses you're looking at that. So for example, there's three people looking at the Grand Canyon, a pastor, a painter, and a cowboy. All three sitting next to each other, same day, same time, looking at the same identical scene. The pastor says, wow, what a great God I served that created this beauty. The painter said, if I'm able to transport this beauty to my canvas, it'd be a masterpiece. The cowboy looks and looks and said, man, it'd really be a bitch to get my cows from down there. So all three of them are looking identical thing, and yet all three have a total different interpretation of what they are seeing. So what is the most important thing to me and what I teach about mindset is that your mind and how you look at the world and how you face adversity, right? Be listen, that bad news, will come to all of us at one moment in time. It could be the pandemic. It could be a horrible physical diagnosis. It could be we lost a loved one. It could be that we got scammed, whatever. But that bad news in whatever shape or form will come to all of us. So then the question becomes, what do we do with it? So that's where mindset kicks in. The mindset that allows you to inform all your decisions in life. The mindset that allows you to say, for me, for example, my mindset says, I don't know the word I cannot. In my mindset, the word is, how can I? My mindset said, there's no such thing as a mistake or, or failure. Failure doesn't exist to me because it's either I do something and it comes out wrong. I didn't fail. I have a great opportunity to learn. Now, if I do it again, it's not failure. It's just pure stupidity. I'm just a freaking idiot. If I do the same thing over and over again. So that's my mindset that does that, that allows me to look at the world in that manner. Fear. I believe that fear is just the person that recognizes his weakness. What is strength? When I focus on what I know to be my strength, you know, and that's how I look at the world. And in this course that I teach on the Narco Mindset Academy, I take 12 principles that allow me to build what I call the ultimate narco mindset. You know, the mm -hmm. mindset that I can overcome anything. The mindset that at the age of 36, I went back to prison, forfeited over $60 million to the government, another, ten, another five years in jail. And I looked at the guard and I said, thank you. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, man, look, I had a lot of responsibility on the streets. A lot of people depended upon me. And I was a miserable person. Now you will take care of me. 
you will feed me, you will house me, you will clothe me, and I have 24 hours a day to make sure that if I get out of here or the day I get out of here, I'm going to be so much better than I am today. So we're, pre- we're inmates would say, hey, George, you need to sleep 12 hours because if you sleep 12 hours, you sleep half of your sentence away. I'm like, if I sleep 12 hours, all I do is waste half of my life away. So see, that, that is my mindset and that's how I look at the world. Okay, but how, first of all, that what you've been through is freaking incredible. And what's so interesting to me is most people would have never been able to bring themselves out of that. So there's something special there that I want to really hone in on because that's the point and that's what people have that get them out of these things is there's that, that switch, something that allows them to think differently, to, to, to move the direction differently. So what was it and when was it when you got out of that flow of that prisoner mindset, that criminal mindset, when you were like, all right, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to learn. And here's an opportunity to do something else. Because when I get out of here, I have different plans for my life. When was that? And what did you have to go through for that really to change? Or was it something that you always had that you didn't listen to? It was really something that I developed as a young kid. You know, is that the fact that all my life I've worked, you know, my dad dropped out of school when he was in sixth grade because he was very poor and had to go to work and he became a millionaire. And by the age of 10, my dad had made my brother and I read every major autobiography. So we had read about Napoleon. We had read about Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great. We had read about Churchill. We had read about Jose Fouché, you know, all of this. And that allowed us to see how literally all these great world leaders pretty much all were the same. You know, they all had the same principles. They worked extremely hard. They sacrificed. They didn't matter how many times they got knocked down. That didn't mean nothing. That's just an opportunity to figure out how to get up better. So I developed that throughout my whole life. So including the fact that when I joined the cartel, I never saw myself as a criminal. I never, I mean, I was, literally I was a nerd. I had never done drugs in my life, never drank alcohol. And the interesting thing is it did not come out. It did not come out in, in the uh, series, but they asked me a question that's really interesting. No one ever asked me that, but it was really, uh, pretty accurate. Billy Corbin, the producer, just a great guy, genius. I think they did a, a fab. I ran from them for three years. They begged me for three years to do this. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do cocaine cowboys for one simple reason. Unless they were willing to show up really bad, because look, it's a glamorous life, right? Yeah. I mean, crap, you're 20-some years old and you're making millions of dollars, millions of dollars in jets, cars, mansions, date the most beautiful women in the world. Of course, it's attractive, but there's a, a very dark side to it. And my fear always was that if they didn't show that dark side, there would be a mother that would look at that show and say, hey, you guys think that's pretty cool, right? Well, I buried a child because of you or a child or, or a kid dropping out of school to become me, you know? So I was, I'm always very cognizant of that because listen, there was a lot of pain. We hurt a lot of people thinking we were hurting anyone, right? The, the old thing today, oh, what I'm doing doesn't hurt anyone. It only hurts me. Bullshit. It hurts everybody but you. I mean, you're the smallest of the victims. 
It hurts your parents, your family, your children, your community. So with that in mind, they asked me, hey, George, how it was it that Pablo Escobar, Chapel, Sal, Willie, name whoever you want, they had as many passports as you did, fake passports. They had as many airplanes as you did or more. They had as much money or more than you did. And yet they weren't able to walk away, but you did. And I answered just on the top of my head because I didn't consider myself a drug lord. I was a businessman. See, and because I was a businessman, when we started in the cartel, it isn't what it turned out when I decided to walk away from a million dollars a month for doing nothing. We were businessmen. We had construction company. We built Miami. We had airline. We had coal mines, emerald mines. You know, we had a lot of, we had a shipping company. We had a banana import company. So we were not drug lords. We were business people. And cocaine happened to just be another company that we owned. Mm -hmm. When I realized that that was not who I thought it was, which was for the rich and famous, the Hollywood celebrities, you know, think about Miami. You can buy a mansion, a nice four bedroom, three bath home at that time for $30,000, $40,000 and a kilo of cocaine was 70. So who was buying that? But then I went to prison and the world changed and I walked away. So I told them, I said, I walked away because I never considered myself a drug lord. And when I realized that the business I was in now had changed and now was killing kids, I walked away. They can now walk away because like one part, it did come out on, on Netflix, who would Sal Magluta be in Montana? This is high school dropouts. How smart are they? People thought they were smart. Think about this. How smart are you when you're wanted by every federal agency and you're giving an ESPN interview? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really, really smart, right? I mean, look, I love the guy. He and I were like brothers. It killed me that he's doing the time that he's doing. I said it, it didn't have to be that. This story didn't have to end this way. This could have been a, a, an amazing story of redemption, of hope. Yeah. Yet I'm the only one that can tell a story of redemption. I started everything. If you look at the video canary, and they arrest 130 people, which was the first big case in Miami. These people sound that they were selling ounces and grams at a disco. Well, for two years, I was bringing 600 to 800 kilos a month. And they didn't even know my name. Till today. Till today, they never had a wiretap on me. And they never had a compromising picture. If you look at my YouTube channel, you will find an interview that I did with my first undercover agent in my case. And he will tell you in that interview... We didn't even know there was a cocaine problem in America until we found out about George Valdez. And that was because my attorney was ratting me out. That's how they found out about it. Otherwise, they would never find out. I went to my office at 7, 7.30 in the morning. I wore suits every day. And I left at 6.30. And I had a lot of, a lot of you know, legitimate businesses. Hmm. Yeah, because you probably wouldn't have known the health, like the repercussions of what cocaine does at that time. It was just... It was so new to you guys, right? It was just something like you, you didn't know the consequences of what you were dealing with in that. And none of us did it. We were really, we didn't do drug or drink. See, people it's look so at interesting. They look at the cocaine world post Pablo Escobar. Like everything mm -hmm. starts with Pablo Escobar, right? Right. In 82, 81, 82. Listen, there was a huge world before Pablo Escobar even existed. There was a huge world while Pablo Escobar was still stealing tunes. From dead cemeteries, you know, the, the most powerful people ever in the cocaine business, I said probably to Chapel because I, I would say Chapel was in a league of his own. What he ended up doing, I don't think anyone has ever done, you know. I mean, the dude had distribution in every continent of the world. But prior to that, 
or during the times of Pablo, the very, the, the richest and the most powerful, no one knows about them because we were not out there up front. We were business people. And we loved that Pablo was getting all the publicity. But think about it. This whole world started six years before Pablo even existed. That wow. We brought in thousands and thousands of kilos before Pablo ever stepped into the limelight. So what was going through your mind when it started to get super violent? Like when you started to see your friends, like people dying, people getting killed and all that. It went from this business to like your friends are wanted for murder. And it and like it was insane, man, that how that docuseries went from how it started to the violence that went on in Miami was just like it gives me goosebumps because it was it's it was freaking wild to watch that man like i can't even imagine what it was like to see that from your perspective like or to hear what was going on what was going through your mind when you were you started to hear what was happening with the escalation of that whole case well think about this so what and when i went to prison i mean before i went to prison when I, we started the cartel from 76 to 79, which I went to prison, 80, let's say 1980, I went to prison. My godfather used to say, if you have to carry a gun, you should have to, you should never be dealing with that person. We didn't carry guns. Literally, it was just wide open. We did 75 to $100 million on a handshake. So I go to prison for five years and I'm very detached from the world, right? Because in prison, you, you're not, if you want to do your time quickly, you got to make your, up your mind that you are in prison and not on the streets. Right. If your mind is half on the streets and half in prison, man, that time becomes enormous. So you got to work. You got to forget that there's a world outside that prison wall. And you do your time. You get into your routine. You do what you got to do. And that's how time passes quicker. So I had no clue. As a matter of fact, I go even further. When I was confronted, because here's what happened in my case. When I, get arrested, when I walk away in 1987, beginning of 87. I get arrested in 1990. I mean, there was no, nothing going on. The reason was because the government had a task force following me for all those years, four years, and they just couldn't take it that I walked away legitimately and I lived this legitimate life of a multimillionaire, right? I let, you know, I, I was making a million, million and a half a year raising, breeding horses. You know, I had orange groves. So they wanted it all. And Jeff Sessions, well, because of my case, ended up becoming senator and then become uh, attorney general. Actually, the guy treated me extremely fair. So with them, when I got arrested for them, it was simply lots of money, little time, little money, lots of time, right? Because I had dealt, when I walked away, the people that I, that I was working with prior to March of 87, they kept going. And then they got arrested in 1989, 1990. Went to trial, everybody got convicted. So... Literally, they could have charged me with a life sentence because when I walked away, the most you could give me was 15 years. But see, the, the law changed from that 15-year conspiracy to the minimum mandatories. So now that 15-year could be three life sentences. To import, conspiracy to possess what you were going to import, conspiracy to distribute what you were going to possess that you were going to import, even though nothing happened. So it didn't matter. You and I talk today and say, hey, let's bring in a load. And you make a phone call and say, where can I find the pilot? That's it. That's all you need, buddy, to get three life sentences. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a messed up justice system. But anyway, they wanted it all. I had just become a Christian. And, you know, I was miserable. I, I, I wrote a blog that I said, look, I'm 21 years old. I make two, three million dollars a month. I have million dollars worth of cars, jets, helicopter, yachts, 
mansion and I date the most beautiful women in America and I want to die. And I want to die because see, I thought that's what was going to make me happy. And in reality, now that I had it all and I was still miserable, I needed to find meaning to my life. And I knew there had to be more to it. And I began to realize that I was changing, that I was not the person that my parents raised me to be. You know, I was college educated. So anyway, I, I forfeit everything to them. And the day, the day that I got arrested, the only person that had said something, it was a lie, was one of the pilots in that case. And that pilot said, oh, I took Dickie Lynn, who used to be my, my partner, who ended up going to trial, getting a life sentence, didn't rat nobody out. He says, I, I took him to Miami. George picked him up about 10 o'clock. And then later on at night, he comes back. Somebody else brings him back with $3 million. And he says, oh, look what George paid me. Total bullshit. Anyone that knows something, we don't, even if that, if that instant had been right, I would never go up to, a, he would never go to a pilot. You know, you, why, if you want to do that, you would have taken the pilot with you. You know, anyway, we all knew one thing, that the weakest link in all of our organization was always going to be pilots. So that night that they bring me to Mobile, Alabama, which I had never been in my entire life, that guy gets killed. While he's a government, while he's working for the DEA, he's using a DEA airplane to smuggle cocaine for himself. And he crashed in the fog. So they had no case against him. So I could have fought it. Could you beat it? I don't know. I mean, I, we had a hell of a chance. There's no witness. So, but I just couldn't take it anymore. I just felt that if God was going to change my life, the only way that was going to happen had to come. I had to put this whole world behind me. Now, I knew that I couldn't hurt nobody, right? Because statute of limitation had run out on everybody. So when you, when you proffer to the government, even though your sentence is, in other words, I got 10 years, which technically was a violation of my parole, right? Because they didn't catch with anything. So I'm admitting to violating parole. Long story is you still have to confess everything you've ever done. And you, and you want to do that because you don't want them to ever come back with something you have not confessed to that they can charge you with. Mm -hmm. So you literally... When you enter into a plea agreement like that, and mine was money for time, you want to just, if you ran over a dog, you want to tell you you ran over a dog, right? Because you got immunity from everything you've done up to that time. So years pass, I'm out, and they come get me. And they wanted me to testify against Sal and Willie. But the interesting thing is that Sal and Willie has me testifying for them, right? Mm. Because their whole defense was, hey, we were drug dealers. But when George quit, we quit. And oh, what's the evidence man. of that? It was the evidence. What's the evidence? Well, when George got out of prison, if we had not quit, we would owe him millions. But because when he got out of prison, we gave him nothing because we told him we didn't do anything. See, technically, he had to give me, because I handed, like the prosecutor says, I gave him the keys to the kingdom, right? I mean, I handed everything on a silver platter. I didn't have anyone to run the cartel for me. And he had, Sal and I have been, his father, my father were best friends. We called him mama and papo because they were like, Love them to death. So I literally handed him the key. So I said, hey, here's who brings it in. Here's the airstrip you bring it through. Here's the corrupt sheriff that will let you bring it in. Here's who you sell it. All you need to do is get a pilot. And, uh, and they, they did. And they became very, very big. So technically, if they had kept on, they owed me, you know, roughly three dollars $400,000 per load mm. that would come in. But when I went to see them, that I got out, which would have been like $27 million. When I got out, when I went to see them, they're like, we don't have anything for you. We, we ended up not doing anything. Now, did I believe that to be true or lie? I don't, I'm, it's insignificant. All I can testify under oath is to what I know, what I saw and what I heard, not what I imagined. 
that's why in court, when I looked at him and, and, and they asked me, the defense asked me, do you believe, or the prosecutor asked me, do you believe that they quit? And I answered truthfully, I have to believe they quit because if they didn't quit, I looked at him in the eye. They were the biggest son of a bitch that ever walked this earth because the betrayal would have been too painful for me. And, mm -hmm. and that was the truth to that. So they based their defense upon that. All the government was with me. I mean, the government had hundreds of witnesses. The, all, I all, all, I would, all I could say about them was, yeah, I got them started back in 1978. Well, that, you can tell that all day long. It don't matter because that's five years outside the statute of limitations. You know? So yeah. that, that, that was, that was, but you know, what I think about what they did is irrelevant. But, but the interesting thing is that even when I got out and I'm told about murders and all this, Man, Lance, I would have put my hands on fire and swore to God that there's no way that he would have done that, that he would have ordered all those murders. That's how much, how close we were, how we were raised, you know, and especially him. I mean, he was raised in Christian summer camps every summer, yeah. you know, and, and to go crazy like that. And of course, look, the, the evidence of the murder was overwhelming. The government lost the case because they, like everything the government does, you overplay your hands. More is not better. And they relied too much on, on, on the woman and, and she was a drug addict and you get good lawyers. See, all those lawyers they had, oh, South specifically, his main lawyer, they were my lawyers. Uh -huh. For them to represent them, I had to authorize them to represent them. The government was pissed at that. I, I'm here to tell the truth. And if they, they ask me, I'm going to tell the truth. You ask me, I'm going to tell the truth. So it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, mm. and uh, so it was sad. It was sad that it ended like, so what happened, going back to your question, when I got out of prison and now I had to walk around with four or five bodyguards, now we have to carry machine guns. Now I have to have cameras all over my house and a tag dog. Now I can explain to my son where he would, hey, daddy, I want to invite my friend Billy over to go swimming in the pool. And I'll say, no, no, son, you, we're going to be busy. Kept making up lies. How do I explain to my how do how does his friend goes back home and says, oh, he was so cool to be at George's house because... Man, they got people with machine guns and they got attack dogs and cameras all over the place, you know? So to the moment that I just came to a point where I'm like, I can't take this. This is not who I am. This is not, this is not the victimless crime. This is people getting hurt now. And listen, at that time, Lance, from the day I came out of prison, I started all over again. I wasn't doing anything. I had one right hand guy that did everything. All I did is back it up. Say, send the cocaine, don't send the cocaine. And, and actually, when I came out of prison, when they left for California, according to uh, Netflix, I, I, was, I was bringing in more cocaine than anybody else again. Because all these people knew that this 23-year-old kid laid in the floor of a prison, being tortured to death, so he wouldn't rat nobody out. So I had a tremendous reputation, which is why so many people are dead and I'm alive. And I walked away. And it was, look, it wasn't easy walking away from all that money and and the power, which is the most insidious drug, right? The money is, you know, after a while, I mean, how many houses, cards, and all that. But that power, man, the people worship you like God. That you can walk any place and, you know, and have whatever you want and date whoever you want it, and people be scared to death of you. It's very difficult. Yeah. can only imagine that, how, what a world that was. And to your point, watching, you know, when you get to know the characters, in this, you see them in the beginning, they're these fun, lovable guys. And then towards the end, there's like this mass murder going on. You're like, what? 
how is this guy doing that? It was just such a, it was such a crazy transition into seeing the chaos that was going on. And I can't even imagine what you must've been thinking when you got out, like what the hell is going on right now? And when I saw they were running both, I went nuts. I'm like, dude, you're not a freaking celebrity. You're drunk, man. What the hell's wrong with you guys? Yeah, wow. Were you, did you have any close calls? Like, were you worried about being like a hostage or anybody trying to, was there anything that you, you must've had like a fear, a lingering fear after for your life? No? When I walked away from the cartel? Yeah. When I walked away, I thought I'd be killed within a month. Yeah, because what's the what's the process with that when somebody actually wants to walk away? Well, it's- we didn't have a very good retirement program, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, and well, you know, for me, I was just so desperate, man. I was just so, so desperate and that I just couldn't take it anymore. And I, and I moved. But in, in one of the things that you want to change your life, change your environment yeah. immediately. I moved from Miami and think of it, listen, I used to think that the sun rose and, and, and went down in Miami. I mean, I love Miami. I had a lot of power in Miami. I had enormous respect. Great city. Yeah. And, and at that, when, when I, before I went to prison, it was just awesome, man. And then it became the most dangerous city in the world. So when I walked away, I didn't care if I would get killed. Because the thing with the cartel is the unknown. What they cannot put up with is the unknown. And what I mean by that, okay, so if I say, hey, I'm going to testify against Pablo Gacha, they're like, oh, I'm going to tell, no, I'm going to tell the government Pablo Gacha lands it. I don't give a shit. I mean, the government knows that already. What they cannot allow is for you to get up in front of 12 and point your finger, right? So when I walk away, their mindset is, why? There's no investigation. He's making a million, million plus a month for doing nothing. He's living the life. Why would he want to abandon this? When they cannot answer that why, the easiest thing is just take him out. When I, when I went to prison, when I, went, when I was arrested in Panama, within a year, the cartel went out and found the people that tortured him. And they brought him to my parents' house to tell my dad, hey, be proud of your son. He didn't say a word. And the truth of the matter is they didn't go find him to avenge me. They went to find him because they were convinced that there's no way a 23, I mean, this was April, February 29th, literally a month and two days earlier, I just turned 23. That this 23-year-old kid, wholesome kid who worked for the Federal Reserve Bank at the age of 17 till he went to college and graduated would, would be able to stand, stand all those tortures. Because they, they knew very well how life was in South American prison. They knew that it's not the United States, you know, where they're going to beat you to death. So they did to find out what I said. Now, they tried covering it up by saying, oh, we did it to, to you know, to make your parents, whatever. Anyway, I was like really pissed, right? Because my parents, I never told my parents about the tortures. I didn't want to. I mean, what, what purpose would that have solved? You know, my parents were innocent of this whole world. So, so I had that immense reputation and that uh, I didn't tell on anyone I then, I, I, I was willing to be killed, nearly came close to being killed. So even a year later, when the uh, Medellin cartel went against the Cali cartel and the Medellin got wiped out, I had just gotten out of prison the second time and I was in Miami. I went shopping and my father called me that there was this person from Cali and uh, at the house waiting for me. And I'm like, I mean, what the heck? You know, I'm like, well, there's a few left from the whole world alive. And I, I, get, I went there because I've always believed you don't run from problems. You face them. If you, if you run 
you admit that that what you are being chased for, you deserve it. So you face it. You know, if you got nothing to fear, you nothing to hide, nothing to fear. So I went, and it was an attorney, and he had a message from the head of the Cali Cartel. Say, hey, just want you to know that we have tremendous respect for you, and if you ever need anything, just give us a call. I could have hurt people in my first trial, or even when I was tortured. I could have hurt a lot of people that were just up and coming in that, in that cartel before they became so powerful, you know? Mm. But I didn't. You know, I didn't. I just took my beatings, took my electrical shock to my testicles, and, and went on. Because I've always lived my life with the thought that I never want anyone to shame my children because of their father. Mm. And that's been critical for me. And it's evident. Look, I did Black TV, I don't know, over how many millions of views already. I did Valuetainment. It's, I think, like 230,000 views. I've been, now, I wrote a book since 1998. I've been on a lot of big podcasts, television shows, Netflix. I don't know how many millions of people thought. There's not one person, one person yet to get up there and say anything negative about me. They might say I'm loud, I'm obnoxious, whatever the heck they want to, you know. But no one can say with authority, hey, that guy's a rat. That guy did this. He hurt. That's got to feel good, man, to have that respect for, for keeping your word. I mean, that's, I mean, just there's not many people that can be that way in this world, know. in this life. There's a lot of people that don't keep their word for the simplest things. And, and it's not that I, I disagree that there's not that many people that can be like that. There's that many people that choose not to be like that. Right. We can all be like that. Right. We can right. all be like that. You know, it's just how much value. That's why it pisses me so much when in today's world, truth doesn't mean nothing. Truth is the foundation of life. Yeah. If your word doesn't mean nothing, if you can get up there, like all those politicians and on and on and on, and, and lie to your face left and right, and you're going to support them because you like their agenda? No, to me, a liar is the lowest come on the earth. You know, I have no respect for a lie. I mean, what respect? And, and worse yet, when a person can look at you in the eye and lie to you. It's like you tell me, hey, man, you know, you're just a piece of shit because I can lie to you. And, and you're going to say, oh, yeah, I love you. You're great. No, man, you're a liar. You're a piece of shit in my eyes, period. Mm, because yeah. it, there's that's nothing that is controlled by environment, circumstances, or nothing. You either tell the truth or you don't. Face the consequences. Every choice we make has a consequence. But interesting to know that every choice we make becomes part of our history, the story of our life, you know? Yeah. So we need to ask ourselves what type of story people want to say. Yeah, so much truth there. There's something that I want to ask you that, you know, we talk about a lot on the show around trauma and around the effects of, you know, the, the shit that we go through and how it affects us later on. You were tortured some terrible things were done to you. How did you deal with that emotionally? I mean, and how did it affect you? Did it, you know, how did it show up in your life? Because that's you know some really crazy stuff that isn't the norm. And to no. be able to get through that and to be able to actually create a new life of purpose and meaning without this like addiction and, you know, destroying your life. It's, it's, it's rare after going through something so serious like that. So walk us through that a bit. You know, interesting is like, like, like I was saying, that news is going to come, that thing will happen. So then the question is your choice. What do you do with it? 
do you allow it to destroy you? Do you ponder on it? Or you say, that was just another stage of my life. I overcame it. I'm better. I'm, be I'm stronger. And I move forward. And I do not allow it to kill me because then I give power to the people that were trying to kill me. So it, it really is all about a mindset. It's all about how we look at how we fall. It doesn't matter how we fall. What matters is how we bounce back from the fall. But, you know? but sometimes people that would go through that, it's not even a control. It's so deep in their subconscious that their conscious mind may think that they're in control of what they're doing. But there's these habits, there's these belief systems from such traumatizing events that'll surface, right? And I just find it fascinating how you've been able to, of course, the mindset is so important, but sometimes it takes, there's been people that have gone through a lot less that have been a lot more long, had a lot more long-term damage. And that fascinates me, right? And, you know, people have to do this work and there's different ways to process this shit that we go through. And I guess that's so interesting to me is to know that you've been able to really turn a really challenging situation into something, you know, so beautiful in your journey, but it's, it's not always that easy for people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look, it's how we process events and things. Yeah. It, and, I, and I guess to a great extent, it happens to how you've lived your life and what you've gone through and how you bounce back from events and how you continue to build, you know, yeah. and how, again, how do you have that mindset? I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. So when we moved, I've had a cardiologist in Palm Beach where I lived and for three years. And I used to do Ironman and ended up having m muscle damage to my heart. Nothing. So, you know, I go to the cardiologist twice a year. Everything's fine. Suddenly, we moved to another city. And my wife is, I want you to go to a cardiologist in this city. I, I said, I don't want to because it's, I only see the guy twice a year and it's, less than two hours away. My wife insists, insists, insists. I go see the guy and, you know, he's a professor and good, good, great cardiologist. And he's like, hey, you've had every test to your heart and uh, you never had a CAT scan. Why? I'm like, I'm not the cardiologist. And I've been going to the Cleveland Clinic, which is like the best in the country. But I was going to the one in Palm Beach. Anyway, so he orders it. The next day I go for the AKG and the nurse comes out and says, the doctor wants to see you right now. So this is a Friday. He comes into the room. He's like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to say. You should have never lived past 30 years of age. Wow. And I'm looking at, you read my book. Now, this is my first thought. He's like, what book? I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, you have a very rare heart defect. And the only reason we ever find this defect is, in all, you got the Widowmaker defect, which is you're missing a valve and you have an artery in the wrong side of your heart. And it gets squeezed. And you've seen it like Pete Maravich. You've seen like that last this summer, that, <clears throat> that young soccer player that died in the middle of a contest. Anyway, he said, I I'll see you Monday because I got to research this. I said, all right. So I go Monday. No big deal. And he comes in and he's like, look. He said, you can die any minute. If I was you, I'd go to one of the big boys. And now this is a professor in a cardiologist saying, I would go to the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. They're the best in the world. Well, my wife gets stressed. I mean, she, poor thing. She, she starts writing to the Cleveland Clinic and says, listen, you guys, my husband could have died. You've been seeing him for three years. You didn't discover this. She raised so much hell that that Monday night, I get a call from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. And they're like, we looked at your chart. Can you be here Wednesday? Two days. I'll say, yeah. She says, Thursday, 
You're going to see Dr. Gabriel, which is the best cardiologist in the country. Thursday, you're going to have a test. Friday, you're going to have a test. Monday, you're going to have the last test. Tuesday, you meet with the surgeon. And Wednesday, we'll do open heart surgery. So literally, all I mean, little five days of your life, you go from being super healthy, eating organic, exercising all my life, to knowing that I, I can die while I'm talking to you right now. So they run all this test. And on, on Monday, when they ran out test, which was the most painful thing I ever had in my life, where it felt like they were going with a clothes hanger down the, my artery all the way to my heart. He comes and she says to me, it's really interesting because you got the healthiest heart I ever seen. You know, you have zero plaque. I can tell you've been an athlete and you eat well. He said, but this is all I can tell you because there's no one like you that we know of. Your risk of dying is the same with the surgery as without the surgery. So I looked at it and said, doctor, you tell me that if I have the surgery, I don't better my risk of living? She said, no. She said, we just don't know because we never had the surgery done. So anyway, so I looked at it and said, doc, if that's the case, I'm going to go with Jesus. She's looking at me like, what are you talking about? I said, look, he made me this way. And I said, doc, let me tell you how I look at the world. You don't seem to be stressed. Said, I would venture to say every patient I ever told, if I ever told this to any patient, they'd be like crying and weeping. And you're smiling. I said, doc, let me tell you how I look at the world. My life is a win-win. I said, number one, if I die tomorrow, I'm going to see my mom, my dad, friends that I've lost, and Jesus. And if I don't, and I said, don't get me wrong, I'm not in a rush to get there. <laughs> but if I don't, I'm going to continue to enjoy my wife that I adore, 20, married 25 years, six children, five grandchildren. And I know that she was Arab, so I don't know if she believed in Christ or not. And I'm like, oh, and by the way, if there is no Jesus, I'm just going to be fertilizer like you. So, you know, so she's like, all right. Just see your cardiologist now every three months, and I want to see you twice a year. I mean, every I want to see you every three. So the other day when I went back to the cardiologist, I, I walked in and I said, hey, doc, I made it to another visit. And he's like, what are you laughing about? Mm. You know, you can die. I said, doc, I've been doing some research. And he's like, well, what'd you find out? I said, that's soaking you. He's like, but I don't have a heart defect. I said, doc, I never read anywhere in my research that you need a heart defect to die. So I got this heart defect. I can die any minute or I can live another 15 years. I don't know. Do I care? I said, Doc, you know, I, I'm a Cuban. We like to negotiate. But my research also revealed that I can't negotiate this one. So I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to continue to do what I do. I'm going to help people. I live my life like I told my children. Before 35, have no fear. Take risk. After 35, have no regrets. I said, Doc, I have no regrets. I've lived a hell of a life longer than I should have lived. So if I stay, I'm going to help. If I don't, I'm going to be all right. And it's, I have no control. So why stress over something I can't control? So that puts it into what my mindset is like. Am I afraid of death? Hell no, I'm not afraid of death. We're all going to die. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm afraid of living and not having an impact on a, on a person's life. And, and I pray that when the pages of history are written, history will remember me. Not as that Netflix drug lord will remember me as someone who made an impact in other people's lives. And that's what dude, I'm there for. Inspiring, dude. I really mean that. That's The thing is, is like you can say have a, a great mindset, but when you tell that story and just, you know, from what I've learned about you is that you actually walk the talk. You actually apply that. And it's great because it really is a choice, right? Your perspective, your mindset is a choice. And it's great because it's such a powerful message on how you look at the world and how you look at the adversity in front of you, right? Yeah. And 
and I, I get people want me to coach them all and I can coach everyone. And, and I have a very balanced life. That's something that's critical. So I, I created this narco mindset Academy, you know, people sign up to it, $47 a month, but that goes to buy books to prison. Cause that's my mission. Now send a million books to prison. We send between 2020 and this year, we've sent over 80,000 books. We don't ask people for money, donation, my speaking fee, royalties, all that is, is in my, in our, in our income is what pays for it. But it, it's awesome because people go in there and, and I build it into 12 principles, 11, and you get to the, the crux. What is the crux? The code. What is it? What do you live by? What is it that when someone knows you, they know what you will do no matter what, and they know what you will not do no matter what. No circumstances affecting either one. That code that you live by. And I, and I said to people, everybody wants to be better. And I get hundreds of emails. But dude, you want to be better? Or do you want to work on being better? The opportunities are there. You know, we can learn. We can become better. We can build our mindset. We don't have to live a life of defeat, a life of anguish, a life of fear. You know, might as well die to live that way. So... But the question is, how bad do you really want? How bad do you really want to work on becoming that you know, ultimate or, or having that ultimate mindset that it doesn't matter what you face, man. There's no fear. It doesn't matter that, you know, you will overcome any obstacle that you will live a, a fulfilled life, that you will be a person of purpose, of meaning, or you just want to go through life and just be, you know, a comma in, in the book of life. It's our choice, you know? We're all born with infinite amount and ability of learning. You know, we are a, an unbelievable creation. It's just how bad we want to work on being that. How bad do we care about being that person of purpose? Amen. Where else can we find you? You've got your book, Narco Mindset, the Narco Mindset Academy. Is there anything else that we can look forward to you coming out with? Or Yeah, I, you know, my Instagram account is where I really publish a lot of content. Every day I publish a, a short video or a principle that www.narcomindsetacademy is my main program, which is, you know, people work on each principle during the month and the third Thursday of every month, I go live, Q&A, you know, ask me anything, how can I help them become better? So I do that. And, and then, uh, yeah, we're working on major Hollywood production. I'm working on something very, very exciting, which is to be part of a game for disabled children or people is the most undeserved population on earth. You know, almost 2 billion human beings with disability and there's no game for them that will help them not entertain them, but will teach them and will help them to become better and to live a more fulfilled life. And so I'm working, I've been asked to be part of it and I'm very, very excited with the, with the people. That's exciting. And then a major production about my life. I've turned down five studios. So somewhere around there, there's somebody, we're dealing with somebody now that will do something. Like I tell, listen, I don't want to tell another narco story. I, you know, I'm not a mobster. You know, people tell me, oh, George, if you tell more cartel stories, you're going to have a million followers. I don't give a damn. I see, I see all these mafia guys. And listen, I don't blame anyone for doing what they got to do to make money. But I see all these mafia guys. They open a YouTube channel. They got 500,000 followers, whatever, subscribers. I said, they do. They tell, they start out, most of them telling how they ran it. And number two, about the life in the mafia. And, and I, so I told this one guy, he says, I said, and who will I help? Listen, I can tell cartel stories to Jesus comes, you know, stories nobody ever heard. And yeah, 
But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to glorify a world that is nothing to glorify. Mm. Whenever I tell a story like with Pablo or anyone like that, it's to teach a bigger principle. Yeah. Because my mission not to entertain people. See, those guys need those clinics so they can make a living. I'm a self-made millionaire. I'm retired. I have no debt. I live a hell of a life. I drive a brand new Rolls Royce. So I live a good life. I don't need clicks and subscribe. Whoever listens to my channel or sees my content is someone that wants to become better. I love that, man. You know? Yeah, because, you know, if your purpose was to entertain, you could do that. But your purpose is a bigger mission to, you know, inspire people for their true purpose and to really, you know, navigate life through a better way, through their mindset. And it's, it may be a longer path to get those subscribers, but it's more of a sustainable, more valuable path because you're actually helping people with the root of the issue. You're not just entertaining them on YouTube, right? Yeah. And that's, that's powerful, bro. And it's amazing what you're doing. You know, think about it. I heard this, this podcast from a friend of mine and it was really, really powerful. The guy said, imagine you walk into a Starbucks and there's 30 people that are willing to hear your story. You'll consider that a great success. So maybe I have 50 viewers of a video, some three, 400, but whoever does, I can get the emails that I get, how I have changed their lives, how I have helped them. Listen, every time we tell a mafia story or a cartel story, we negate and laugh at the many victims along the way of those stories. We laugh at the many mothers that bury children, something that is totally against life. We laugh at the many children that grew up without a father. We laugh at the many wives that struggled to raise a child while their husband was in jail for being a selfish human being. Because anybody involved in a life of crime is nothing but a selfish human being that don't give a shit about nobody but them. You know, that's the bottom line. So for me to tell those stories is for me to glorify life that I am embarrassed. I am ashamed that I was part of. I don't do what I do to erase or to make up for the bad I did. You know, one thing I know, I didn't order no one's murder. I didn't kill anyone. But you know how many people overdose because of co cocaine or crack that was a result of something that I started? So I am very repentful of that. And my heart breaks for all those people. So I refuse. And I will never. I don't give a damn. Listen, I don't, mon I don't monetize my videos. On my YouTube, every video, I put no. There's no commercials on my videos. There's no ads. I don't give a crap about that. Yeah. Like I said, I'm going to live the life. I put all my kids to college. I've helped them buy houses. I'm helping my grandkids now. And I live a hell of a good life of my hard work of believing in God, believing that there is, that there's faith, that there's a God that forgives, that there's redemption, that we are not defined by our past, that we can redefine ourselves and reinvent ourselves. And that when, when the, sto or the story of our lives keeps, keeps getting told, we keep making better chapters mm. of that story, you know? Yeah. And helping people, man. There's, listen, Lance, there's a lot of hurting people out there, brother. Mm. A lot of hurting people out there. And if we're not cognizant of that, and if we, we love all those stories, we need to ask ourselves, why do we love all those stories? What, what is there to love about killing people? You know, all this mafia story, riding people, killing people, bribing people. What is it to love about that? And you love that? Well, good. Good for you. Something to think about. Think Something to think about, everybody out there listening. You know, this is this is powerful, man. And George, just I just want to say thank you, bro, for what you're doing. 
And, you know, I know we're out of time here, but, you know, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you coming in and just dropping the real truth and value and not just, you know, the glamorous stories. Thank you for having a purpose and thank you for really inspiring people because the world needs it. And listen, keep doing what you're doing with, uh, you know, bringing out that adversity and how people can overcome adversity because adversity is, is, is killing us, man. You know, it's killing us. We need to really, really believe in, in ourselves. And if we are a person of faith, believe in, in, in our God or whoever God may be for us, but just believe that we can be better. We were created perfect. Bad choices have made us, un but we can become perfect again. We can become much better. And uh, we can overcome adversity because a lot of people, and listen, and stress mental health. Mental health is real. It's real. It's a lot. We don't want to talk about it, but people are struggling big time. And we got to be just cognizant of other people's pain, man. Because the, the this this life will end. Listen, what you saw there was when I was 23 years old. I'm 65 now. So I, my life could have ended between that 23 and 65. My life could end any day. Our life is a fleeing moment, man. Help people. Think of people. You know, just maybe just listen to somebody. And, and let them just the ability that they know there's someone that cares and someone hears them out. That can bring a lot of relief to a lot of hurting people. So I applaud you for what you're doing. That's why I agreed to do your podcast. And uh, I turned down a lot of podcasts. So yeah, man, I applaud you. It was great being with you. Great with my buddy that you talked to. And, you know, have a wonderful Christmas and New Year's. You too, my man. Thank you so much. Thanks exactly. so much. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. All the information is below in the description or the show notes of this podcast or on YouTube. If you want to follow Dr. George Valdez, highly recommend you do so. If you haven't seen Cocaine Cow, go check it out. It's really entertaining and it's a wild story, you know? Also, if you aren't subscribed yet to the podcast and you listen to this on audio, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this. And if you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button also and the bell to keep you notified. I love you guys. I appreciate all of you and want to continue to bring value and help you make change, help you change your perspective on adversity and help you grow in this world. All right, much love. We'll catch you next time. 